This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Welcome to the edition podcast, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we assess the bumpy road ahead for Liz Truss, ask whether help to buy has been a success or a failure, and look at the growing popularity of metal detecting. First up... For the cover of the magazine this week, as the Liz Truss era begins, James Forsyth has written about the political gambles she is taking from the outset. He joins us now, along with ex-Number 10 advisor and co-author of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, Rachel Wolfe. James, let's start with the energy crisis, which you say is the chief issue facing the new government. What can we expect them to do on this front? So I think you're going to see this big bazooka package. And it is going to be very expensive. It's an intervention on the same kind of scale as furlough. However long they say it is going to run for, if energy prices remain this elevated, I find it hard to imagine a a government allowing customers to end up picking up the bill for that before the election in 2024. So it could potentially be very expensive, especially if energy prices stay high. And I think the political logic behind it is this, which is we're going to do something really big so we don't have to come back with another series of measures, and to give us time and space to get on with the rest of our agenda. And I think that their thinking is essentially without this, you would have a very deep recession, and this crisis could consume the government. So they are prepared to do something that is not very free market, you've got a minister literally setting the price of energy, and very expensive to try and give themselves political time and space. Rachel, as James says, this policy has a huge price tag to it. And we're also expecting a fiscal event from the Treasury later this month. Will it be much the same? Will will we see more of a high spend, high borrowing approach? I mean, James has always got better gossip than I do on this front. But that's my assumption. I mean, they've, they've made it very clear that they want borrowing to take the strain for everything. They are not suggesting they're going to reduce spending on public services or similar. They are going to reduce taxes. And as James says, they're going to do an absolutely enormous energy bailout, which they have to do, to be clear. I'm I'm not wholly convinced by the structure of the package, but she has identified that if she does not do this this week, it's over and she's willing to do what's required to survive. And James, so is the hope that growth, economic growth, will be boosted enough to make up for the the heavy short-term borrowing? Is that something of a big gamble, do you think? And what is her plan for growth? Is it mainly through tax cuts and deregulation? Yeah, so the quasi quasing piece in the FT setting out what they're planning to do essentially says, look, we're going to boost the trend growth rate of the economy to 2.5%. So ultimately, in the long term, this extra borrowing is irrelevant. And Liz Truss on the steps of Downing Street said, look, we're going to boost the economy through, through tax cuts and reform. So essentially tax cuts and supply side measures. I think this is a big bet, partly because since 2008, people have tried lots of things to get the growth rate of the UK economy going, and none of them have really succeeded and delivered. I think the other question is, for example, on supply side reform, the the, the supply side reform that would make the most meaningful difference to the economy is planning reform. But, you know, Boris Johnson had a majority of 80 and he couldn't persuade the parliamentary party to to go along with 
planning reform then. So two years out from an election, is a new leader going to find it easier to persuade Tory MPs to, to sign off on this? And I think the kind of question is, you know, what is going to make the UK economy grow? And taking the trend growth rates to 2.5% is, is almost doubling it. That, that, is, that is very, very ambitious. I think the danger is that the markets become increasingly worried that you won't be able to do it, become more worried about the, the borrowing. You've already seen sterling is now at its lowest level against the dollar since 1985. I still think the UK government is going to be able to get its debt away. But what will happen is the currency will end up taking the strain. And that is going to lead to more inflation. I think this, this is the risk of their approach. I think their view is, though, is, look, if you don't do something different, how on earth are you going to get the tax burden down? And so they are prepared to take this risk. The, the, the phrase uh, quasi quasi has been heard to use is, that if you don't do this, you're going to end up with some kind of neo like consensus on the economy. So I think it is an attempt to say, right, we, we are prepared to take this risk because we think the alternative hmm. is making permanent this high-tax situation that we're in at the moment. Well, Rachel, you co-authored the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, and, and James points out in his piece that some of the things that Liz Truss is talking about not so long ago would have been called a magic money tree if Labour had attempted a similar strategy. Is this still the Conservative Party that you once wrote the manifesto for? Well, I think the Conservative Party has been changing for a while. And one of the advantages of the Conservative Party over the Labour Party is it's a more adaptable and flexible party because it's usually more oriented towards winning elections. From an electoral point of view, Fiscal conservatism does matter quite a lot to sort of traditional conservatives. It doesn't matter that much to new red, sort of red wall or whatever you want to call them, sort of new coalition. What will matter to them much more are one, that they can afford to heat their homes this winter. And she's right that she's dead if, if you don't do that. Two, they are very sceptical that they have to pay for it in the future. They are much more pro windfall taxes and action on large companies, they're going to be much more sceptical about things like reversal of corporation tax. And three, they're going to be very anti-worker deregulation. I think actually don't care so much about planning reform, which is a long way of saying, I think she is going to have to make a more active choice about which electoral coalition she's going after or which electoral group and how to combine things than has been true in the last few years and was true in 2019. I think one of the things that we also ignore is in 2019... The Tories had this great adhesive to hold together their electoral coalition and these competing interests, which was Jeremy Corbyn. It was always going to be more difficult for whoever, whether it was Boris Johnson or whoever it was in 2024 or 2023, because you didn't have Corbyn to act as a glue to hold together these divergent bits of the Tory coalition. I mean, I think Rachel is right that, that, you, that you are going to have to make some choices. I think, interestingly, her decision to send Jacob Rees-Mogg to business suggests that she is prepared to go into deregulation on the labour market. I think that politically is very fraught, especially if that comes at a time when unemployment is beginning to rise because the economy is on the turn. Mm. And so, Rachel, do you see that if there is this, I suppose, ideological vision towards certain things like deregulation, of the workforce, will the politics of the party allow her to carry out that vision? I mean, she as she takes her premiership, there were quite a lot of MPs who were backing Rishi Sunak. She did not have the overwhelming support of the parliamentary party going into the final round of the leadership contest. I mean, will a lot of things she wants to do just not be politically possible? It seems to me she has one advantage, which is that Tory MPs are really not going to want to get rid of another prime minister before the next election. So there is an extent, particularly with things like budgets, where she can call their bluff 
on other forms of legislation, I think this is the big risk that she has, which is, as James said, if she wants to commit supply side reforms, they're going to require legislation and they all have huge amounts of opposition. And Liz Truss is also shaking things up inside number 10 this week, which which Katie Balls goes into a little bit in her column. And in particular, she's restructured the policy unit. Could, could you explain to listeners a little bit about the new look of number 10? I mean, she's effectively decided to make it really small. And there's a good version of that and there's a bad version of that. The bad version of that is a very small number of people who are relatively inexperienced try to manage everything from central government. That won't work. The good version of it, though, is if she has a small number of very clear policy priorities that she gives personal time to and her advisors have time with her, I actually think that can be a more effective method of delivering priorities through government than a huge cadre of policy advisors, none of whom get very much time with the prime minister and where it's usually pretty unclear how much the prime minister cares about it. So I think we will find out pretty soon which one she's gone for. But it's not insane if she thinks she has little time, a small number of things that she wants to get done, and she wants people who are going to push that through and nothing else. But James, surely almost every prime minister in modern times comes into Downing Street promising to for a slimmer, nimbler operation. I mean, David Cameron made similar promises, and it, 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 they just realise they, they need the staff numbers to make things happen. I mean, is that what's going to happen here? Yeah, look, everyone wants to move away from a presidential form of government. Everyone wants to give departments autonomy, and then the departments do something stupid, and number 10 says, oh my God, we've got to take control. I think you also can see, I think Katie makes an interesting point, that the Trussian defence of the reshuffle and the particular emphasis that has been put on on loyalists in that reshuffle. This is not a reshuffle that is designed to try and kind of reach out and heal the party. Is if she appoints people that she trusts and who are loyal to her, she is therefore more prepared to let them do things. I think she does deserve credit for, as Rachel said, in her speech, she's very clear on what her three priorities are, right? They are the economy, energy, and the NHS. I mean, prime ministers can't try and do everything. If, if everything is your priority, nothing is your priority. Hmm. And I think mean that that is a mistake that the, the Johnson government fell into, which is you know, when it started listing its priorities, there were just so many of them, and they changed so regularly, but it, but it was very difficult for the system and the machine to understand it. I think the other question is, you have this massive challenge of coming in in midterm, which is that she only has two years to start delivering on things and how much meaningful change can you achieve in two years I think it, it, it is another question I think especially because in the last years the Tories have really not had a public service reform agenda. Hmm. Well Rachel thinking then about Liz Truss's priorities which as James says she made very clearly in her in her first speech as Prime Minister and looking ahead to 2024 which is not that far away what would a Liz Truss manifesto look like and What should it look like? So first of all, I think the next manifesto has to be a version of we started this incredible job. We've made so much progress. Now you have to trust us to carry on with it. So to James's point, there have to be the equivalent of spades in the ground. And the things that she's going to have to make progress on beyond her supply side reforms are the NHS, which is falling apart, and crime, which is coming up massively, I think, locally. So she's going to have to show some kind of progress on those. Beyond that, I mean, it seems seems to me fairly clear that she's going to have the most 
traditionally Tory libertarian free market manifesto that we've seen in decades. And she will be presumably hoping that by then she will already be able to demonstrate that her approach is working, that people should stick with it. Thank you, James and Rachel. Next, from Generation Rent to Generation Buy, Emma Hollander has written for the magazine this week about her experience using the Help to Buy scheme to purchase a small one-bedroom flat in North London. She joins us now along with The Economist and Truscateer, Dr Gerard Lyons. Emma, you write about your experience in this week's magazine of using the Help to Buy scheme to buy a flat. Can you talk us through what made you initially want to use the scheme? Absolutely. I think with many, many concepts, it was it was a great idea at the start. And so I thought, wow, here is a leg up on the property ladder. Finally, I don't need to be that typical type of millennial who relies on their parents. I can actually purchase a property through my own means. And so the great thing about Help to Buy was that it gave you that leg up to achieve that. And and how it works is that normally if you're unless you're financially fortunate, you would purchase a property by taking out a mortgage and then making up the rest with the deposit. But what Help to Buy did was, not only could you take out the mortgage, but it would also give you a loan up to 40% of the property value. So for me, that was ideal. On my salary as a teacher, I really didn't earn a lot. And so four and a half times my salary equaled 170,000 which in London doesn't buy you much more than a shed. So what I did was do the help to buy because that enabled me to not only use that 170,000, but also add the equity loan, which increased my value to over 300,000. And that actually made a property more affordable or rather accessible to, to my millennial lifestyle. And tell us why you've become rather disheartened with it. I know. Well, I'm I'm speaking to you and I'm holding a a money box, which was my first money box, which is in the shape of a house. (laughs) And I feel like this is the only thing I've got left. And if if I were a Lego character, I'd be very happy to live in this plastic (laughs) house-shaped money box. So why have I got so disheartened with help to buy? I think the reality is you realise... You don't own the property. You are not the owner of the property, and nor will you ever be able to be. And I don't think this is anyone's fault. I don't think they could have foreseen the, the black swan events which happened, the pandemic and the war in Europe, of course, which has resulted in this country being in huge amounts of debt, but also interest rates rising exponentially. And so at the moment, for the last five years on the help to buy scheme, I only pay interest rate on my mortgage. My mortgage rate, a five-year fixed term, is coming to an end next year. And God knows what the interest rate is going to be. And in addition to that, next year, I also have to start paying the interest rate on the equity loan, which starts at 1.75%, but then increases steadily after that. And I was thinking about this and I thought, really, the analogy would perhaps be going to school. And I'm sorry I use this analogy because I am an ex-school teacher. And imagine if you went to school 
and five years down the line, you find you're actually no more intelligent than when you went into school. And you've got the additional problem of thinking, well, if I continue in school, the fees are going to increase, and there's no guarantee I will become any more intelligent. There is no guarantee I will gain anything from my investment. Because what the pandemic, because what this time has has unfortunately resulted in, is interest rates increasing, and also property in terms of new builds, the property price has depreciated. And so obviously I think, great, I'm going into something which is an investment. I did not realise that my one-bed flat could go up but also go down in value. Mea culpa, I must admit. <laughs> Gerard, in your recently published paper, Helping More Become First-Time Buyers, you describe both help to buy and right to buy as a success. Would you say that Emma's story is typical of first-time buyers' experience with, with the help to buy scheme? Well, it's great to be on the podcast. The actual piece itself, I thought, was a very telling and insightful piece. It obviously reflected Emma's individual circumstances, but it also highlighted broader issues. And those broader issues very much come to your question, shall we say, because government interventions have generally, in terms of right to buy previously, have now helped to buy since 2013, been seen as being popular and been seen as successful. But if circumstances change, in Emma's case, she highlighted what could happen if the costs of servicing the mortgage change, or indeed in this case increase, then basically it makes the whole picture very different indeed. I think what one would say in answer to your question, when one looks at help to buy, it has proved successful if you look at the number of people who've actually accessed it to buy a property. But in that paper I wrote for Policy Exchange, I raised the issue as to whether such government interventions were really necessary, whether indeed they were the best way to go. And in many respects, what the help to buy experience that Emma has talked about is clearly the broader macro picture can change, but also more generally, it raises the issue about whether the market could be better positioned to address the big issue, the big underlying issue here that led to help to buy and is indeed why we're talking about this issue is about turning generation rent into generation buy. Everyone immediately says it's about building more supply. In Emma's case, the issue raised on that is about having the right amount of properties in the places where people want to live. So you actually not only want to live there, but then can sell them on when you want to move. But in addition to supply, the big issue that people don't really talk enough about is about the whole financing side and about the availability and affordability of finance for first-time buyers. Emma, as you talk in the piece about being a renter and the challenges of that, and now you're a property owner, looking back on it all, do you regret buying and do you wish that you'd, you'd stayed as a renter? Laura, I have to say I do, because what happened with the Help to Buy scheme was I took the 10 years of savings that I had from my working career thus far, and I used all of that in the deposit. So that's about £40,000, which I contributed to the Help to Buy scheme in the form of a deposit, which I know I'm not going to get back. And how I know I'm not going to get that back is that the property which was purchased at approximately 340000 
is now expected to go for no more than 300,000. And so when you actually think about what profit will you make if you were to sell the property, which at the moment is, a, is somewhat of an oversaturated market, so there are so many new builds everywhere, you have to contemplate that actually, if I were just renting alone, that would be just 700, 800 pounds a month, which is akin to the mortgage amount which I have been paying. But it would not dig in to the 40,000 pounds saving, which I had contributed to the deposit for help to buy. Gerard, you are one of uh, three economists who Kate Andrews wrote about in, in last week's magazine who have advised Liz Truss, our new prime minister, on her economic policy. Have you made recommendations to her regarding housing? I'm not officially advising, but you're right, I have provided some advice. As the new prime minister has indicated this week, the three big issues are energy, the economy and health. So in answer to your question, I would say that housing is an important issue, but it's not one of those three immediately addressable issues because it's about the energy crisis, preventing the recession, addressing inflation and the health issue. But be in no doubt that housing is an important issue. I'm talking about this from an economic perspective. Clearly, others would look at it from a political perspective. But let's come to the issue here because... It's an interesting point. There's a whole host of ways we can go on this, but there's this perception in the UK that housing is a one-way bet. But quite clearly, as Emma has touched on, house prices can fall. It's quite an unusual situation, maybe, but I remember experiencing that myself in the early 90s, but just after I bought, the housing market in London fell significantly in the early 90s after the recession then. In fact, we've only had two periods prior to perhaps now when housing has fallen in nominal terms. Clearly, when the level of house prices is much higher, or indeed very high as now, that raises the question about the vulnerability of the market. And in economic terms, you need one of two situations to change. You need the economy to falter so unemployment rises, or you need higher inflation to trigger much higher interest rates. So it's rising unemployment or rising interest rates tend to be the two key macroeconomic variables. But what we see in addition to this, and that's the point that I think this whole debate should raise, is whether the government or whether the market is best placed to step in. Because what we find when the market changes is that, in terms of the housing market changes, some of these government schemes, as Emma has touched on, aren't maybe best suited. And then we, what we have in the UK is the problem with retail banks. They tend to want low risk. And what I've been arguing for is that you actually want to allow the market mechanism to really step in here. Investors and financial firms, not just in the UK, but internationally, they have very different risk appetites and they have very different appetites, therefore, in terms of who they might lend to and over what time period. So it's risk and maturity. And if they could join our own high street banks in providing mortgage financing, then I think that's the way we can go. And hence, it's called the blended mortgage. Like retail banks want low risk, short term. Pension funds want to lend low risk, but longer term. Investment banks are prepared to take higher risk and shorter term. So Emma's problem is the mortgage was high and she had to use up her savings to get a deposit. So allowing blended mortgages allows better suited mortgages to suit the individual circumstances. But the wider issue is that, look, property prices are so high, maybe we need to be 
improving turnover in the secondary market in places like London, where it's much more expensive to build new properties and encouraging people maybe to take on new properties in other parts of the country as well. So coming back to your question, no, it's not been directly talked about, but I think it's a key issue. And maybe the concluding point on this is that when one reads Emma's story, it comes back to an issue I see with my own children who are in their 20s. You can now be in a professional job and still, particularly if you live in London and the South East, not be able to afford to buy. That's not your fault, but that's the reality of the situation we're in. Therefore, some people rely on the bank of mum and dad if they can. But it's about maybe we need to have a rented market that is also fully suited to the new class of people that's coming along, millennials who don't have the ability to buy a property. And maybe we should have less of aversion to renting, but also the market in terms of the mortgage market and the first time buyer market, that probably will start to adjust to reflect the changing macroeconomic environment we're about to see. But a lot of issues I've thrown in there, I'm afraid. Thank you, Emma and Gerard. And finally, in the magazine this week, Nigel Richardson has written about his experience taking up a new hobby, metal detecting. He joins us now, along with the editor of Treasure Hunting magazine, Julian Evan Hart. Nigel, could you start by telling listeners how you discovered metal detecting as a new hobby? Uh, yes, well, the, the title of the book is actually The uh, Accidental Detectorist. And the reason I called it accidental is because if it wasn't for COVID and lockdown, I, I no doubt would not have ever taken up the hobby. The, 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 the first lockdown coincided with me having a column, newspaper column, on the, in the travel section, the Telegraph, in which um, I was expected to travel and write about travel. But how do you do that when, when you're locked down? And I decided the smart idea might be to travel in my home patch, in, my, in the ground around where I lived. And I mean, travel in the fields around, but also travel kind of vertically into the soil, like kind of time travels. I had this idea of maybe trying metal detecting and went out with a guy in Kent called Chris Rogers, excellent man, who has a YouTube channel called Addicted to Bleeps. He took me out near Dover for a couple of hours and uh, in that time we found a, a Tudor buckle which to him was kind of neither here nor there. He, he, he's got lots of these. To me it was absolutely astonishing that we could find such a thing in a space of a couple of hours and that's what got hooked me, hooked, me hooked really because the idea originally was just to find a subject for 800, an 800 word newspaper column and I drove back from that trip thinking mm, I could, you know there's a good, there's a, could be a book here. There actually was. Yeah. <laughs> Julian, metal detecting seems to be having something of a resurgence, particularly after the, the popular TV show Detectorists. Do you sense it's becoming more fashionable? Have you noticed more people taking it up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it boomed and peaked in the late 70s, early 80s, and we didn't have the sort of marketing signs we could interpret. But now the amount of social media questions I'm fielding every day from clearly people who've taken up the hobby just recently and it's absolutely marvelous you know there are i would anticipate variably from probably 70 to 100,000 active metal detectorists with a with a big spectrum on the word active no it really is right now it's going for a major boom in popularity and, and can you tell us how you got into it Oh, blimey. Do you know, that is over half a century ago. Um, <laughs> I was just watching this guy out in the field 
swinging. I, I had no idea, you know, what this uh, electronic item was. So I plucked up the courage, went over, and uh, he showed me a handful of gold coins. And to a sort of nine-year-old kid, that, that burns into your brain. And it was a long time before I could actually afford a detector, probably sort of mid, mid to late 70s. But I've actually been doing it ever since and love it, absolutely love it. And Nigel, what are the rules about detecting? What happens if you find, say, a gold coin? Do you have to hand it in or, or can you keep it? Well, this is very important, this, because when I, when I started doing it, I had absolutely no idea of the obligations, responsibilities that you have as a metal detectorist. And actually, they're huge. Yes, you do, basically. The, the, you know, the world of archaeology coexists with the, with the world of, of metal detecting. And there's a slight, often uneasy relationship, but it's a very important relationship. Because 90%, at least 90% of the significant archaeological finds made in any given year are made by detectorists, not by archaeologists, made by amateur detectorists rather than professional academics. And therefore, we have, as detectorists, we have a huge responsibility to report items that we find, certainly items that fall under the definition of treasure, which, which is measured out by the um, Treasure Act of 1996. And also other objects that we think could be of interest, we, we, we don't have a legal obligation to report, but we have a kind of ethical obligation to report to um, an organisation called the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is run by the British Museum. So I thought, you know, you can just kind of go anywhere and do what you want, and, you, and it's a very kind of individualistic, acquisitive hobby, but it isn't at all. It's a, it's a very responsible hobby, and it needs to be done properly. Julian, what are some of the, the, the best things that you have found, and, and how would they compare to a... An average day's haul. Oh, crikey. That's the interpretation. It's a lovely thing about a hobby. What is best or treasure to you? And, and it varies. One of the best finds I've got, funny enough, is a commonal garden bullet. And detectorists, we find absolutely loads of those. But this particular bullet that I found actually shot down a Zeppelin in 1917. So in its context, as, you, as you'll appreciate with that, a truly historically important artifact, which is quite common generally. Yes, I've had Celtic gold coins, medieval gold coins, and it, you know, but everything has a story to tell from the humble shotgun tip right the way up to a huge ceramic pot of gold coins. Nigel, do you feel any envy listening to Julian's description of his? Uh... <laughs> I'm really trying to fight my envy. Yeah. Um, it's been a process for me of coming to terms with other people being having found much more than I'll probably ever find. And that's part of what I write about in the book is that um, I kind of approached it in all the wrong way at the beginning. I was incredibly impatient to find loads of good stuff and envious of other people who'd found better stuff than me. And I realised that's really not what it's about at all. And as I say in that piece in Spectator, this guy, uh, this wonderful detectorist, Dave Crisp, said to me, that Dave Crisp being the detectorist who found the Froome hoard of Roman coins, 52,000 of them in one go. And I went out with Dave in Wiltshire a few months ago and uh, he took me on a field where he'd found quite a lot of Roman stuff and hoping that I would, he was kind of encouraging me to find stuff and I didn't. And Dave, Dave says to me, well, um, you know, a find is a bonus and a good find is a good bonus. And it's not just about what you find, it's being out in the landscape and it's about being with people and it's also about being on your own as well, actually. It's about being in your own headspace. And there's a kind of meditative quality to metal detecting. A lot of people will tell you that. It can be a very soothing, therapeutic thing. And Julian, how do people go about deciding where to look for treasure? Because presumably a lot of 
land has been kind of looked over and there must be lots of places that haven't been is, is there a kind of community a sort of mapping scheme that exists so yeah i mean it's, it's sort of you're like a land detective when you first start off you rely on the experience of your elders or people who've been doing the hobby for a longer time than you to share information and that's the vital mechanism of the hobby is sharing 50 years ago i knew nothing now i can look at a field with relative ease in certain crop situations and other clues as well and say there's a Roman villa out there using a lot of other clues that you can find you know like migratorial birds for example stopping in one spot in a field every year well you know they're energy saving little units and they're not going to fly around and so there must be a reason and the reason often is that there was a large building or a settlement there where you get all the organic waste from the humans, vegetables, eating food 2,000 years ago. So there's a higher worm content. So your birds stop there. And it's little things like that that, you know, that are, they fascinate. They absolutely do. But once you store them and you log them down, you can you, you almost create a compendium of facts that might not be applicable in all areas, but using some of these techniques with Roman villas or settlement sites, nine times out of ten, I'm successful in finding them. And just to finish, for anyone listening who might be interested in this as a hobby, what's your advice for novices? Julian, I'll go to you first. For novices, listen to people who've got more experience than you. You might not always agree with them, but listen. And bear in mind, once you extract a coin or artefact from the ground, you are its temporary custodian for the future generations. So one of the most important aspects of metal detecting is, of course, site finding, research, and the joy of finding. But once you've dug it out of the ground, you're responsible for conserving it. And conservation is not a particularly difficult topic. There are so many books out there to help you. But don't just leave it in a plastic bag or don't leave it untreated. It Now you've adopted it. It's like a puppy. You don't buy that and take it home and not feed it. You are responsible for that little Roman coin. So learn all you can about conservation. It's it's absolutely vital. And Nigel, what would your advice be? Well, probably join a local club if there is one. Talk to people. Link up with the National Council for Metal Detecting, probably. And just kind of really get into it. Because when you find stuff, there's a kind of dopamine hit that you have when you when you get this stuff out of the ground. And it's really extraordinary. And although Jules has been doing it a lot longer than I have, we were talking the other day and we both agree that we still get identi- you know, the, the same kick out of it even though we're kind of poles apart in terms of our experiences, the, the, the thrill of it never kind of wanes, I think. This is what I've been told anyway. Thank you, Nigel, and thank you, Julian. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. 